This is the Tom Bernard Show. Filling in for Tom Bernard, I'm Dave Schrader, along with Mike Bolino. Tom will be back with us on Monday. I'm your guest host today and tomorrow, right here on the Tom Bernard Show. Due to the billions of marketing dollars spent by Walzer Automotive on Tom Bernard Podcast, you hopefully know that Walzer sells cars. What you might not know is that they also have two full-service collision repair centers in the Twin Cities. They're fully certified by all insurance carriers and can help you navigate all the paperwork if you ever have an accident. But wait, there's more. They've also been in the paintless dent repair business for nearly 30 years and can take those pesky dings out for just a fraction of what traditional bodywork costs. Broken windshield? Walzer Collision is a fleet of full-service mobile glass repair trucks as well. Walzer are pros at body and glass repair, but don't take my word for it. They have an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau and a nearly perfect 4.8 Google rating. Check them out at walzercollision.com. Michael Bryant, Brad, Sean Bryant, what's the latest? Well, basically, we're trying to represent people who have been hurt then talk to them before they talk to an adjuster. Uh, one of the key points is to make sure you know what your rights are before you start talking to the insurance company and they start asking you questions or they try to settle your case early and cheap. Well, what's interesting to me is, you know, a lot of people have fear of attorneys. It makes them very uncomfortable. They get nervous about it. What should I do? I've known Michael for years and years now, and I would highly recommend you. So that should be good enough for everybody because I don't endorse people who are dirtbags. Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, but I guess the key is, is people think I'll charge them if I talk to them. Right. So a lot of people call me up. It's like, how much is this going to cost if you call me back? Like, you want me to call you back? How much will that cost? I don't charge people. The only way I get paid is if we recover, um, if we get money from the, the other side. And there's a lot of people I talk to that I never get paid for that are just part of giving them advice to make sure they know what they can do and what their rights are. And your record's terrific as well, we should point out. Well, it works. It's been good. <laughs> it's been good, ladies and gentlemen. It's been good. And how do they contact you? At, uh, e- either through our website, which is minnesotapersonalinjury.com, minnesotapersonalinjury.com, or at 800-770-7008. Michael Bryant, Bradshaw, and Bryant. You may be right. This is the Tom Bernard Show. I'm Dave Schrader, along with me, Mike Molina. Tom Bernard is off today and tomorrow. He'll be back with us on Monday. Mike, I've got a guest joining us now, a good friend of mine, a good friend of our show on Beyond the Darkness. He is a uh, author, researcher, investigator, and world traveler. He conquered Kilimanjaro, which is something I'm completely jealous of, but also glad I didn't have to do it myself. Joining us now, Mr. Jeff Belanger. Hello, Jeff. Hey guys, great to be with you. Good to uh, good to have you here. So Mount Kilimanjaro. Yeah, nineteen thousand three hundred and forty-one feet. If you're keeping score. Yikes! Every foot of it, I bet you felt on that travel up there, didn't you? <laughs> well, you know the funny thing about altitude is that you don't quite know how you're going to deal with it until you get there. And I recall being at a place called Estes Park, California, uh, Colorado, <laughs> Colorado with, right, with a guy named Dave Schrader. <laughs> Uh, at the Haunted Stanley Hotel, which is about 7,200 feet above sea level. And remember when you'd walk up a flight of stairs and you'd just be huffing and puffing? Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, I do that regularly, but it's even worse at the Stanley Hotel. The only upside is that uh, in that higher altitude, one beer equates like three beers. So drinking is a lot cheaper. But the the sad thing on Kilimanjaro is that there are no bars on the mountain. What? Uh, None. There's no toilets, no no showers. How about a White Castle? Is there one of those? 
there is a White Castle, but it's closed. <laughs> <laughs> so it didn't help at all. Well, I know you had a very personal reason for taking this task on. And start us off with that, Jeff. Why, why climb Mount Kilimanjaro? Yeah, so this goes back to 2014. And um, my brother-in-law, Chris, was uh, diagnosed with cancer. And it was, uh, took us out of nowhere. He had been losing some weight. He was 44 years old. And suddenly his doctor tells him, you have cancer, it's stage four, it's everywhere, fully metastasized, and you have 18 to 24 months to live. And before that, there were really no health problems. It was just, uh, what do we do? And so he spent really the next year in depression. But then after that, he and I got a lot closer because he was talking to me. And my sister didn't want to talk about it because, you know, she just was in denial. But he said, you know, I'm going through this weird thing, this, this process of dying. And... Uh, I, I know you're into weird stuff, Jeff. And I said, yeah, that's kind of true. So we got a lot closer in the next year as, as he kind of went through this process. And then he passed away uh, in December of 2016. And that was, um, that was hard for all of us. And I remember talking to him the week before he died. We talked for like three hours about this whole thing he was going through and uh, how he became very spiritual at the end. And he was having these out-of-body experiences where he... He, he could see himself, he saw his grandmother who, who died when he was younger, and um, just all kinds of things. And he said the best he could figure is that something inside this broken machine was practicing, getting ready to, to come out. And so when he passed away, it was hard, and, and my nephew was six years old at the time, and um, it was just one of these things where I was like, man, you know, life is so short. Fast forward six months later, and a friend of mine from the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society was uh, ran into me at an event, and she said, hey, we've got a fundraiser coming up. And I'd done fundraisers for them in the past, and I, I remember I did this Light the Night walk where we walked through downtown Worcester, Massachusetts for two miles holding a balloon with a, a little glow stick in it, and I raised like over $1,000 with social media. People were really generous. And I, I said, okay, Amy, you know, I'll, I'll help if I can, but I'm really busy. And she said, we're going to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Now, Amy didn't know this, but I took two semesters of Swahili in college, which, to make the story even weirder, my professor, my Swahili professor, was the original lead singer and founder of Shanana. I mean, how do you make this up, right? <laughs> so, um, Strange synchronicities, my friend. <laughs> right. I mean, the guy went on before <laughs> Hendrix at Woodstock. Wow. So, um, so I saw Swahili, the the East African culture. Kilimanjaro was was on my mind for 20 years, and I hike. I, I do mountains in New England and so on. And I've always wanted to do Kilimanjaro. It's the tallest mountain in Africa. It's the largest freestanding mountain on Earth, meaning it's formed as a volcano instead of plate tectonics like the Himalayas. And it's, uh, it, you don't need technical climbing experience. So it's not like ropes and hanging by, you know, little pitons and things like that. You, you just have to get to the top. And so I looked at her and I was just like, wow, I can do this thing that's been on my bucket list for so long honor my brother-in-law who just passed away from cancer, raise money for a good cause. And I just went, Amy, I'm in. Let's do this. And so I started training all through the winter. I was put together with a team of uh, four other people from New England, and none of us knew each other. We were just all going to go do this thing for this great cause. And so we trained through throughout. And really, it's uh, a lot of endurance. So getting your body in shape, getting used to the cold, because Kilimanjaro, it's a six-day journey to the top and two days down. And uh, the, you're going to pass through, I mean, at the bottom, it's, it's the, right near the equator. It's like summer all the time. And then as you get further north, it tur- you know, further up the mountain, it turns into what feels like autumn. And then near the top, it's an Arctic tundra. So you can pass through 
you know, summer to winter in the span of just a, a short amount of time. And you're thinking, well, gee, in Minnesota, we call that Tuesday, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, so we, we train for all that. And um, it, it's, it's really one of these uh, big experiences that I became so singularly focused and also scared, not so scared of, of the mountain or the flight or anything like that, but just scared that I would fail. And that fear of failure, you know, when you're in your 40s, that, that gnaws at you. I mean, people were donating money from all over the world for, to sponsor my climb. And, uh, you know, through the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, thousands of dollars were pouring in. And, and suddenly I'm just like, man, I don't want to let anyone down. I don't want to let any donor down. I don't want to let my family down. I don't want to let me down. And so by the time we got to Africa, it was, um, we landed at night. And it was, it was dark, so we, we get to the hotel. It's, it's pretty late, and we just go to bed and didn't get to see anything. It's, it's just driving at night. But the next morning when I wake up, our hotel was three stories in this little town called Moshi, right outside of Kilimanjaro. And I said, hey, is there a place to get up on the roof and see the view? And they said, yeah, there's a little stairway in the corner. You can get up there and look around. And when I get to the top, Dave, i got to tell you, I come around this last corner, and there's Kilimanjaro in front of me. And, man, this thing fills the entire horizon. It's it's right there, and I felt the way you might feel when you imagine you're at a bar or something and your all-time favorite celebrity walks in, and it's just like, oh, my God, there's Mark Hamill from Star Wars right there. He just walked in. I mean, that's how I'm feeling. Like, there's this mountain I've been thinking about for decades, and I'm standing in front of it many miles away, but there it is, snow-capped, the, the glaciers at the top, these clouds moving below it, and I'm in Africa, man. It's amazing. It was just amazing to once, see that. Once you get know, past that first moment of awe, though, was there any slap of reality of oh my god i gotta climb that thing <laughs> you know what the thing about climbing a mountain and this is a there's a lot of life lessons here in this little discussion you you do it one step at a time you know you can't think about a whole mountain uh, it's like when i've written books you can't write a book it's too big it's too hard but you can write a paragraph and you can write a page and those turn into something so by the time we start the climb uh we, we started around six thousand feet that's where the, the the base camp was and it's it's a 45 mile journey that's going to take us up the, the mountain and then down back to to another different base camp and the first day or so is actually pretty easy it's pleasant it's not that high in altitude we're seeing monkeys and all kinds of interesting things but once you get above the tree line once you get through ten thousand feet suddenly everything's very different there's half the air up there and you have to walk pole pole, they say in Swahili, really slow. And as we're, we're getting higher and higher and there's no more vegetation, we're passing plaques where people have died, and it says their names. One person was struck by lightning, and you realize that these gray clouds are whipping all around you, I mean, because you're in the clouds. If there's an electrical storm, there's nowhere to hide, and we're covered in metal gear. We've got poles and, and, and spikes and all kinds of things, and there's nothing you could do except throw your pack down and get under, you know, get beside a rock. So as we're climbing through a landscape now that looks almost Martian, it's just brown as, as long as you can see. In this, 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 and then once in a while, the, the clouds move out of the way, but you still see that summit way up there. And at 13,000 feet, if you stand perfectly still, it wasn't that big of a deal. But if I were to just walk 20 yards, man, it felt like I just sprinted, huffing and puffing. And that's where we lost two people on our, our trip. They, they had to go back. The altitude was too much for them, and they had to turn back and, and walk back down the mountain. But the real profound part of this uh, event really happened on the night we made the summit. And we were going for the summit from a place called uh, Barafu Base Camp, which is 15,000 feet in elevation. And we're going to start at midnight. 
and it's 3.1 miles from there to the summit, and it's going to take over eight hours to go those three miles. Wow. And at midnight, we get up, and it is so dark and so cold. I've never been so cold in my life. I'm a New Englander, man. We know cold, just like you guys in Minnesota. And I go out there, and uh, I'm, I'm well-layered. I've got the gear for it. I've tested it in the mountains. But it's so cold and so dark, and all we can see is the light from our, our headlamps lighting this little you know, glow, tan glow around our feet. That's it. And you just walk and walk. And at first I'm doing okay, but around 3 in the morning, I'm as cold and it's as dark as I've ever been. And I, I, I'm having trouble breathing, so I'm breathing as deep as I possibly can to get enough air, but my face is freezing. So I put a mask on to cover it to, to keep warm, but then with the mask on, I'm not getting enough air, so I have to alternate between breathing and being warm enough. And I just thought, this is it, man. I've got a headache. I had to stop to pee at one point, and I'm trying to zip my jacket back up, and I can't get the zipper connected. It's like they won't go together. I feel completely intoxicated until one of our guides comes up and zips me up like a toddler. And I'm thinking, I can't do this. And it was that moment that I just took a deep breath, as deep as I could, and I said, I'm going to follow the feet in front of me just a little bit more. And around 5 a.m., I turned around, and I see this streak of purple across the whole horizon. And I realized the sun's coming. And I said, all right, man, just a little more, you know. Let me just see the sunrise. And by 6.30 in the morning, just as we made it to a place called uh, Stella Point, which is the rim of the volcano, but still another half mile or three-quarters of a mile to the summit, I turned around, and I saw the most incredible sunrise I've ever seen in my life. And I also saw there's no vegetation, there's no plants, no animals, no bugs, nothing around me that lives. And in that moment, two things happened. I felt Chris, I felt my brother-in-law with me, and I felt something much bigger than me was allowing me access to the summit of Kilimanjaro. Because the Maasai people down in the valley have a word for the summit that they call the house of God, because only God dwells up there. And I felt in that moment, I'm worthy, and, it's, and, and the sun's here, it's warmed up maybe 10 degrees, and I'm going to make it. And it was the most profound part of that entire climb, and I was still another hour from the summit. And sure enough, we turned around and we trudged and we dragged our butts and we did make it to the summit and we got pictures there and that was amazing. And I took a picture holding a, uh, uh, of me holding a photograph of my brother-in-law Chris and my nephew Henry because I wanted to give it to Henry to let him know that his uncle's strong and will be with him as long as possible. But that experience was so life-transforming. And I know the rest of my days, two things. One, I can climb Kilimanjaro. No matter how hard my life gets, I got that. And number two... That sunrise represents hope. And the amazing part about it is that hope is coming again tomorrow, and the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that. Every single morning is another opportunity to try again, to get inspiration, and get yourself to the top of the mountain. And I'll never forget it. And it's just one more step. One more step moving forward. It's an, it's, and you climb a mountain one step at a time. And the other thing that you have to remember, as a mountaineer, uh, an old mountaineer told me this, you have to also remember the summit is halfway. It's no good to get to the summit and not be able to get down. That's not right. the experience. <laughs> when you get to the summit, you're halfway. And I told my daughter before I left, I said, look, when I get to the top, I'm halfway home. You know, the, the real goal is right back here with you. And uh, I'm, I'm very thankful that I got to accomplish that as well. How emotional was that moment to get to the top and see that vision? So, Dave, I'll tell you, at the summit, uh, I was laughing. I was crying all at once. It was just an explosion of emotion. And my thoughts, you get broken down to the simplest parts of who you are. I thought about my family. 
I thought about my brother-in-law, my sister, my nephew, and I thought about that sunrise. And there was no room for anything else because I couldn't breathe. I wasn't processing stuff very well. Um, you know, you just you, you can't think very straight at that altitude. There's there's not enough air. So it just got I got broken down to the simplest parts of me, and I just exploded emotion right there at the summit, laughing, crying, glowing inside, and I will never forget it. And I if it's if that's something that calls to people, do it. Don't wait. You know, do it. Climb the mountain because there's mountains that end up in our way through no fault of our own, and then there's mountains we put in front of us. And it's just so important that we climb those things, whatever they are, because we become better people for it. Well, you've inspired me. Next time you're going to climb Mount Kilimanjaro, I'll send you with a video camera and you can stream me live so I can watch you do the entire climb. That would be perfect. I mean, because, you know, more weight to carry is just great. Yeah, well, they they make those little portable GoPros. Uh, What a beautiful story, man. What a great way to honor your brother-in-law and your nephew and sister and and carry that load to make it to that moment and that it that it was so rewarding on both sides of that that's just a fantastic story thank you for coming on and sharing that with us today yeah man i you know i love talking about it and thank you too and i just hope maybe someone out there someone gets inspired because it's worth doing don't sit around wondering what you could be doing go do it Right. And I love the old saying, as simple as it is, inch by inch, everything's a cinch. Yard by yard, everything's hard. And if you continue to look at the mountain in front of you and see it as the mountain, it will seem impossible to cross. But if you just look down and start taking those steps forward, you'll find out that before you know it, you've got a lot more mile behind you than you do in front of you. That's exactly the lesson of, of climbing any mountain. All right. Thank you, Jeff Belanger. We will be back. You're listening to The Tom Bernard Show. I'm Brad Huckle, president of North American Banking Company. Ask one of our bankers what they love about business banking. They always say the relationship with a client. Case in point, True North Oral Surgery and Implants is a longtime customer with a growing practice. Their banker, Julie Marshall, knows the ins and outs of what they do. So when they need working capital, an equipment loan, or funds for expansion, they call Julie. Are you looking for a banker you can count on? Give us a call. This is Tom. Why not bank with my banker, North American Banking Company, a better banking experience. Member FDIC, an equal housing lender. This is Tom, and I've been telling you how easy it has been for me to lose weight on the Nutramost weight loss plan. My goal has been to lose 92.5 pounds. Well, I've started up another round at the new Nutramost Plymouth location, and I can't wait to shed those extra unwanted pounds. Nutramost is unlike any other weight loss program. It's just so easy, and they guarantee that you will lose 20 pounds or more in just 40 days. There's no exercise, shots, drugs, prepackaged food, and I'm never hungry. The team at Nutramost in Plymouth will support you every step of the way on your wellness and weight loss journey. Then, after you hit your goal, Nutramost in Plymouth is there for you with the Nutramost Forever Plan, an all-inclusive wellness program that improves and promotes healthy living and choices. Nutramost has helped me change my life, and I know they can help you too. Nutramost Plymouth, located just off Highway 55 and 494, Call 763-333-7337. That's 763-333-7337. Welcome back to the Tom Bernard Show. A little later, Ron McNeil from the Fab Four will be joining us. You hear that story, Mike? Climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. Are you you a big outdoors guy? Uh... Not like that. No, no, not to that degree. No, no. I think my biggest outdoors is walking from the front door to the car in like, you know, eight <laughs> inches of snow. But what a compelling story to get up and, and hit that and go out and face that challenge. You know, it is. It's pretty remarkable that uh, 
I, you know, I wish I had it in me to get up and do something like that. I've done um, my own little mount climb, which was going to Romania. I'm going back out there in September this year. Nice. Following in the footsteps of Vlad the Impaler, Dracula, you know, to learn the history and all of that. And I go with a bunch of listeners from my show, Beyond the Darkness. And a few years ago, boy, five years ago, I woke up on Mother's Day. And my chest was feeling bizarre, right? Just felt off. And I laid there for a little bit, and I'm like, yeah, I don't like this feeling. Something doesn't feel right. My, my, my left arm is tingling. My chest hurts. So I got up. I took a shower, got out of the shower, laid down on my bed, and then uh, <laughs> texted my, my then-girlfriend. And I said, hey, uh, can you come upstairs? I think I might be having a heart attack. And she goes, what? And she comes up. She's here. Yeah, you're just having anxiety. You're just stressed. I'm like, no, this, this feels different. This is weird. And I ended up going into the hospital that day. And Mike, they were running all these tests, right? Trying to figure out what was going on. And they're like, listen, you're, you're presenting as though you're having a heart attack. But we've drawn your blood. They do this thing called the stick where they draw your blood. They're looking for gases, I guess, that are released during a heart attack. They said, we're not finding any. We do an EKG and your heart's doing well. But everything you're explaining sounds like a heart attack. And they said, we're going to do one more test. And then, you know, if if that comes back negative, we're going to send you home. I said, all right. So they bring in my dinner that night. And I'm kind of picking at the dinner. And the doctor comes back in. He goes, well, I think we're going to send you home. We can't find any trace of this. You know, I don't know if it's anxiety. I don't know what's causing this. But, you know, we feel confident leaving you to go home. I said, okay. And all of a sudden, I reached up and grabbed my jaw. And it literally felt like somebody just reached in and cracked my jaw off. It, the pain was unbelievable, and I just started drooling. And I go, it feels like I just bit into a really ripe piece of watermelon. My mouth is salivating. My jaw is killing me. The doctor puts his hand on my chest, leans me back against the bed, and goes, get him into the ICU. He's having a heart attack. I'm like, you just got done telling me I'm not having a heart attack. Um, again, they couldn't find what was going on, but they said, we're going we're gonna to go in and we're going to explore and see what we can find. They run these wires for me, and they find this clot had somehow slipped through a PFO, a hole in my heart that we didn't know existed. And he said, the, the, the chances of this happening are minuscule because the way the heart's built, when a clot comes in, it pumps it, and it should have shot it right up to my brain. And he said, and this clot is called a widowmaker. That would have been it. Your stroke would have hit, and that would have been bad. He said, but the way it came in, it dumped into this little offshoot. And he said, and it just sat there, and he showed me this picture. So, you know, of course, it's bigger, you know, because you're seeing the photograph of it. But it was like the size of my pinky, right? And it's this dark gray, and you see this real thin, trim line of black. He said, you see that thin line of black? I said, yeah. He goes, that was the blood flow. So you still had a very thin line of blood getting to your heart, but this clot was in the way. And he goes, so I literally just put the hose down and sucked it out. He said, so you had a massive heart attack, non-heart attack. Your heart's not scarred. You're not dealing with this. But that is as close to death as you can possibly get without dying or having a massive stroke. I'm like, really? And he goes, well, we're going to put you on blood thinners. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And when he had first said that they were going to go in through the thigh, he goes, and I go, well, wait a minute. If you're going to go in through the thigh, because they go through the arterial bits in the thigh or in the neck, I said, uh, well, will that preclude me from being able to walk much and they're like oh yeah the next two weeks you're gonna have to take it real easy with walking because we're opening up a major artery in your thigh i said well you have to rearrange it can we go on through the wrist then he goes well we uh, we can't here we're gonna have to transfer you over to 
you know, North Memorial where they've got specialists, but why do you want to do that? I said, well, on Friday, I'm supposed to fly to Romania to do this trip. And I've got, you know, 25 listeners that paid three grand each to come hang out with me and go to a Romania. I have to kind of be there. And he's like, Dave, you're having a heart attack. And I'm like, yeah, but I got to get, I got to get to Romania. So this doctor laughed. He said, man, I've never seen anybody with a goal like that. They sent me over to North Memorial, did it all radially, and then sent me home two days later. Three days later, I was climbing up 1,600 stairs to the top of Polinari Castle in Romania. And it was one of the hardest walks I've ever had to die. I was so winded through this entire thing because even having this close of a heart attack, it it knocks you down. Oh, yeah, I bet. So I had to walk up these steps, and it's, like I said, around 1,600 stairs. And we get up to the top. It took me some of these punk kids were you know that are part of our group they're up there in 15 minutes but i stayed in the rear and i would take it 10 stairs at a time and then i would stop and breathe and then i just take that next 10 stairs and i was pushing people along and it was great because there were some people who looked at that climb and they're like i'm not going to make it dave and i said i just had a heart attack i'm going to make it you come with me so we stayed in a little pack i brought out my ipod we were listening to 80s rock as we marched up that uh, that <laughs> that hill and made it to the top but that to me that was my mount kilimanjaro moment and getting up to the top it never i've never felt as sweet and and as fresh getting up there coming down i was walking on two pads of jello so my legs are wa- i looked like, like the scarecrow walking down uh, the lane in uh, uh, wizard of oz but i had that was a really profound moment for me getting up there and kind of realizing, Jesus, you know, four days ago, I should have been dead. And here I am at the top of this mountain looking over, you know, the, the castle remains of Vlad the Impaler. And that was pretty, pretty cool and impactful for me to get out there and, and kind of see that. So I, I can appreciate what Jeff did. I don't think I could make it up 19,000 some feet. That's crazy. Have you ever been to like, Colorado, any place with that high altitude? Uh, no, nope. <laughs> wow, that'll affect you. Oh, I bet. Oh, oh my God. I complain when I do 60 minutes on the Stairmaster at the gym, so. Oh, yeah, well, imagine doing that and then going up 10,000 feet. Yeah. Right? The When we he was mentioning, Jeff was talking about Estes Park, Colorado, the Stanley effect. We were laughing. I said, uh, every time we went there, they talk about how haunted it is. And I said, the real scary part is, you know, uh, you get up here and you're ghost pooping. I don't even know where this food is coming from, but you are up so far up. Everything's working to process out of your body. I'm like passing cran bits from kindergarten, right? It's just like <laughs> your body, your body's tightening up and, and shooting it out. And I had no clue about the whole aspect of drinking up there. Nobody clued me in on that on my very first trip. So I threw down a couple of apple teenies with my buddy, Steve and, and uh, I think I was like three apple teenies in and then realized the world was moving really weird. <laughs> and they're like, um, well, haven't you been here before? I'm like, no. And they're like, oh, yeah, because your blood is so much thinner in this higher altitude, the alcohol is going to hit you a little harder. People were wrecked, Mike. I've never seen reactions like that. I mean, wrecked on two or three beers. And they're, they're guys that I, I've, I've watched put away six or an eight pack, you know, yeah. and they're just <laughs> stumbling about. But that there is something to be said about that. Uh, that altitude, it'll it'll take you out, and boy, nineteen thousand feet. Imagine getting to the point where you your brain is functioning in a way you can't figure out how to zip up your own zipper. Yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe one too many uh, apple teamies. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. That's on on even ground. Yeah. I can't even imagine <laughs> you getting up there and, and having the wherewithal to keep pushing through. That I'm just gonna, you know, I, I'll I'll keep making that move. I I don't know that I could do that. 
I, I respect the hell out of people that do. And there are those people that go out challenging themselves constantly, you know, whether it's yeah. swimming to the deepest depths they can get or climbing to the, the top of these mountains. But have you seen the Everest climb? Have you ever seen the video or footage from people that are filming that? Uh, a few, like, you know, over the years, yeah. You just see there's literally bodies along the way. People <laughs> that, that will they'll curl up in kind of the fetal position and sit there because they're just so tired and worn out. Yeah. And then they freeze to death. And the bodies just stay there. That's and, and you mark, as a matter of fact, some of the markers as you go along, they're like, oh, then you're going to see the man in red. And you get up there, and there's a guy in a red jacket and red hat frozen against the wall. And that, to me, it's what inspires somebody to try to tackle that kind of case. It was because, you know, well, I want to be the one to make it, I guess, is yeah. what you're doing. But I don't know. I, you know, I, maybe I just love my family too much <laughs> yeah. to give that a shot. But uh, is there is there any one of those kind of goals you'd like to tackle? Something you'd like to go out and do that? Yeah, I think uh, not this year. Maybe next year, twenty nineteen. I'd like to uh, run a marathon. No, that's a, yeah, that's probably at the top of my list is running a marathon. I mean, uh, I'm not the fastest runner. No, uh, no way. I mean, you know, could run fast and come in first. Obviously, not in a marathon or a hundred yard dash, but I can run for long distances. So yeah, you know, twenty six point two miles. I think I, you know. Could work up to that. I mean, yeah, they always say that once you pass 20. And I have run. <laughs> once you pass yeah, 20. <laughs> like the last six I've heard are just uh, insane. Uh, well, if the first mile was uphill and then the other 19 were yeah, down, yeah. I think I'd be down with that. And that's but, the uh, thing is I, I just have to get uh, the biggest hurdle for me will be running outside because I run at the gym on a treadmill, but right. it's totally different when you're running outside. And also, depending, I, I you know, want to do the Twin Cities or maybe go out back to New York and do the New York City Marathon. But also is the elements that'll be that yeah you know because have you ever thought you know they've got that grandma's run up in duluth yeah uh yeah i've been thinking about that one i mean it's uh i think it's just a matter of like training with someone or looking it up as to how to go about training for it because i'd be doing it by myself so i think what you should do is put on the biggest parka you have and just load the pockets with rocks and run (laughs) so that that way when you get up there and you don't have any of that on you. You're going to be fleet foot, man. Well, actually, I have a weight vest that I oh, you do? Uh, yeah for the treadmill sometimes. So I remember in high school uh, doing the mile run, <laughs> and what a torture that was. Oh yeah. But my my buddy Paul Navarra, who's an officer now in in uh, in Illinois, he was on the track team, and he he kept pushing me. He's like, Dave, it's going to hit you. And I'm like, What's going to hit me? And he goes, Just push faster push a little harder i'm like dude i can't run any harder he goes just trust me he goes yeah i think by the time you hit the next curve you're gonna feel it i said feel what my legs are killing me and he goes just quit whining and run and i put my head down and i started charging with him and all of a sudden it hit that runner's high that they talk about Mm -hmm. i've never have you ever hit that when you're doing the that's amazing what a feeling man i've never had that excited (laughs) me doing going forward because all of a sudden you do start to just move oh yeah it's like you become part of the speed force at that moment, and that was that was awesome. I loved doing that. Uh, I'm not a big fan of running now. I've got <laughs> no cartilage left in my knees. It's basically bone on bone. But that was something that I really respected and, and liked doing once I kind of got over that initial hump of having to do manual work, yeah. <laughs> getting out there to run. Oh, and going back to that, I mean, that was the thing is uh, I remember back in grade school, we did that mile run, and there was always kids had, uh, in my class, and I had some of my best buddies, uh, you know, you're not supposed to run as fast as you can right out of the gate. And right. they would, and they would be winded, and they could not finish the mile. And right. there I was. Like I said, I can run for long distances. So we, 
you know, I'm passing them up. I mean, sure enough, they were faster than me in the short distance, but, uh, run forest, yeah, run. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, so why'd you do this, Mike? Cause I just wanted to run. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. However long he ran in the movie, what, like two years? Yeah. Six crazy. Yeah. Just kept running. And then all of a sudden he stopped and just wanted to go home. Yep. And yep. he had like, you know, 20 people following him. <laughs> yeah. Become so, like a cult leader out yeah. there. Well, I'm, I, you know, I'm doing something. My son is a Minneapolis fireman. He's a Navy vet, and every year he does the polar plunge for the Special Olympics. So this year I've paired up with him on this. We're trying to raise $3,000. Last year our goal was 3000 We hit 5000 Nice. So this year we're aiming for $3,000, and uh, I know Cassie will put up the link for it on, on Tom's show so you can help out on this. But if you can help us, any size donation, a dollar, five, ten, twenty, a hundred dollars, that money goes directly to the Special Olympics to help the athletes that need help with training, uh, outfits, travel expenses, and getting them out and involved in the Special Olympics. So you can help me. I'm going to be out in my old timey uh, swimsuit. I told my son I'm going to go get one of the straw hats and the black and white kind of uh, one piece uh, 1920s swimsuits. But we're going to go up and we're going to dive in. Have you ever seen those polar plunges? Oh, yeah. yeah Holy I, Christmas. I don't know what I'm thinking. No, I've done it, actually. Oh, really? Not, yeah. How cold is that water? I hear it's actually kind of warm under the ice. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, like, uh, it's just like, you know, like they say, like a, just uh, a thousand needles is hitting you at the... You know, oh, that the sounds exciting. Well, I just did it because I was in, uh, we were scouts. And uh, sure. so, like, uh, one of them was uh, getting merit badges and everything. And, like, on my way to get Eagle... Um, yeah, we did that and, uh, we did water rescue and that was even worse knowing that oh, like in the event that you needed to rescue somebody and they were in freezing water, just the <sighs> adrenaline that kicks in. Yeah. Well, I'm going to be taking the plunge in about, I think it's three or four weeks to do this. So if you'd like to help, you can email me Dave at darknessradio.com. I'll send you the link. That's Dave at darknessradio.com and uh, I'll have Cassie put it up on the Tom Bernard Show uh, Facebook page and on the the, uh, link for today's show so it's available for you. Um, So please, if you can, make that donation. Help us out so we can aid and make more attention for the Special Olympics. And remember to check out the best in Paranormal Talk Radio. I host Beyond the Darkness Monday through Friday. We talk about ghosts, UFOs, Bigfoot, psychic phenomena, monsters, myths, legends, and more. You can check that out at darknessradio.com. We'll be back with more right here on the Tom Bernard Show. Tom Bernard here. If you're ready to sell your home you've probably heard that you should wait until spring but why wait for temperatures to rise when the market is hot right now not selling in winter is a total myth truth is buyers are hungry and while other sellers and real estate agents hibernate the chris lindahl team is selling homes like hotcakes chris has done a great job we have our house on the market with chris right now as a matter of fact and the video he did is amazing the chris lindahl team is america's number one remax results team for a reason they play to win And they've got the skill players to sell your home fast. In fact, they sell a home on average every nine hours for over the MLS average. Don't wait until spring to sell your home. Call the Chris Lindahl team at 763-401-SOLD. That's 763-401-SOLD. The first two callers will get a free staging package. This is a huge value, and it's only going to the first two Tom Bernard Show callers from this ad. That's 763-401-SOLD. Call now, get the free staging package, and grab the opportunity before winter is over. Tom here for Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning. When you call Sabre for service, you'll get a certified technician that's an expert at diagnosing, repairing, and installing heating and air conditioning equipment. Sabre Techs give you the service you need, not the other stuff that you don't need. When you combine that with Sabre's A rating for customer service and the best equipment from Bryant, you get exactly what you need. So make the call to Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning today. 
Saber and Bryant, whatever it takes. One, two, three, five! We're back. This is the Tom Bernard Show. My introduction, Mike, to the Beatles was reversed. I was a Monkees fan. Oh, I grew up watching the Monkees on TV. Well, I didn't know about the Beatles. You know, what did I know of this? My, and all of a sudden I heard that they were based on, on another band. And I started poking around in my, my parents' albums and fell in love with Sgt. Pepper and Abbey Road, the White Album, and absolutely loved the Beatles. I've had a chance to see McCartney live. Uh, Ringo and even Julian Lennon, although not a Beatle, still a Beatle son who sounds remarkably like his father. And a few years ago, I'm flipping through TV channels, right? And PBS is showing the special, this, this band called the Fab Four. And I watched this and I just sat there blown away. And I was like, you know what? I never got a chance to see the Beatles. It was out of my, my age range to do that, but I would really love to see this. And I, I called around to a few of my friends and then contacted my son, Nathan. And uh, it was just before he was going to go off to college. And I said, hey, buddy, I'm going to go see this, uh, this band, uh, the Fab Four. Do you want to come with? And he kind of rolled his eyes and laughed. He goes, sure, old man, I'll go with you. And I got to tell you, Mike, one of the most rewarding things, right? He, he knew the Beatles because I listened to them. He went in and sat down and watched this concert. I should say stood up with me throughout the entire concert. And about halfway through the show, he turns to me and he goes, this is the greatest show I've ever seen. Oh my God, Dad! We're watching the Beatles, and that was such a cool moment that we were able to share. And uh, the Fab Four was absolutely one of the best shows. And I, I found out they're going to be back in town this Friday at the Medina Entertainment Center. Uh, you can get information and tickets at medinaentertainment.com. So I reached out. Uh, Ron McNeil is with us right now from the Fab Four. Ron, welcome to the show. Hey. It's- Thanks for having me on. I was going to hang up when you said you uh, first got introduced to music by the monkeys. Yeah. I was going to just get <laughs> I'm just joking. That's, what's funny is that's the exact same thing happened to me. My older sisters love the monkeys, and then that led me to their Beatle records, and I borrowed them and never gave them back. Ron, the, the idea of this show, what, what impressed me so much is, I mean, getting, getting up and singing other people's songs, and there are great cover bands, and, and that's something that's, that's fun and, and easy enough to do. But to kind of nail every aspect of this illustrious career these guys had, I, first of all, I don't know how you find somebody that looks similar to them, who also can carry off their speaking voice, and then can sing and perform like them with every little twitch and nuance of the show. You guys... Well, it, 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 it is a bit hard to do, you know. You've got Yoko sitting in the bag waiting for you. You know, that's the problem. Um, well, the thing is... <laughs> it, you're, you got, got, and you guys are phenomenal. That, your Lennon is, is... I can't even tell you how much I enjoyed that aspect of the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Well, number one, um, like most people in the world, we're all fans of the Beatles. We love the Beatles. We love their music. And let's face it, what they brought to the planet was... Amazing. We started there, and then, you know, we started as musicians, and each of us have a, a slightly different story, but, uh, for example, we found Gavin, who plays George Harrison in our group. We found him, actually, he was born in Liverpool, and we found him in England, and uh, realized, wow, this guy just looks exactly like George and sounds exactly like him, and he's helped us with our accents and different things, but like you said, it's, uh, it's a little bit of a, uh, you know, obviously it's a hard thing to put four guys together who can look something like them, sound something like them, play and sing everything live. I don't know if you know, but uh, the whole show is live. There's no 
fifth Beatle on the side. We play everything live as a four-piece. Right. And uh, there's no tapes or backing tracks or anything like that going on. So uh, I appreciate that you uh, that you appreciate the attention to detail, which is something that we uh, we strive for. You know. Well, and and you guys do. I mean, down to personal ticks of each one of the Beatles, from the way Ringo shook his head during the the songs to the way uh, Lennon tapped his foot and and McCartney's eyebrow raise and and the little you know popping his fingers of the gun move. It's just you guys have embodied this and as somebody who you know i host a paranormal radio show five days a week and and we talk about all kinds of strange things and talk about ghosts being channeled and i gotta say if all four of the beatles were gone i would say you guys are obviously reincarnations or channeling because i've never seen an act that is so precise in every motion and it's not like you guys are to me from the outsider watching it, it doesn't look like you guys are playing a bit you guys embody what these four men created and perform in a way I've never seen before. So kudos wow. to you guys. Well, thank you so much. You know, checks in the mail. Like, <laughs> you want to be our you want to be our manager? I mean, this is <laughs> sign me up. Let me get in on this. Uh, well, I, and I've had a chance. I got to be honest with you. I cheated on you guys. I went out and I saw a few other Beatles cover band, you know, groups Naughty that, that are out there traveling. And although they were fun and entertaining, there was nothing like watching the Fab Four. You guys, well, thank you. you guys, thank you. I appreciate it. Like I said, uh, yeah. um, you know, everything from our McCartney, who is a right, naturally right-handed player, learned to play the entire show left-handed just for the show. And, you know, we tape his eyebrow up so it looks like Paul, you know. And <laughs> no, don't tell <laughs> me that. His eyebrows are natural. Don't tell me that. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, okay, sorry. They're completely natural. <laughs> and, you know, a bunch of different things that are uh, some technical things, which a lot of people don't, just don't take the time to understand. But we're playing songs like... Strawberry Fields and and A Day in the Life and some of these songs live on stage that the Beatles never even attempted or even thought about attempting to perform live because there was so many different kinds of instruments on there, horns and strings and backwards things and stuff like that, that, you know, we had to put and arrange as a four-piece to make sure it's it's going well live on stage and people were able to um, recreate the records that way. And you do a remarkable job in that. Now, do you have to, is it, is, are there a lot of fiery hoops to go out and represent this band and get the permission and rights to do these things? Uh, no, there's nothing like that. No, I mean, as a, as a live performance, there's not really anything that we run into that way wise. I mean, if you're making a film or you have to get some rights to some songs to use in a, in a documentary or something like that, then yeah, you'd have to, you'd have to ask for, Grand rights or sync rights are there, but as a band, we could play. We could play the Monkees if you wanted us to. <laughs> All right, that's your challenge on Friday. I'll be there. Uh, <laughs> All right, very good. <laughs> and and getting out there doing the show and and being so good at what you do, has it ever drawn the attention of any of the surviving Beatles? Have they ever made comment or seen any of the shows that you're aware of? Well, uh, we do know that, you know, I don't know if you know this, but our band has a Christmas album out, yes. which is kind of weird. I do know and, that, uh, in, in the style of the Beatles, which is phenomenal. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so the, the year it came out, which was, uh, well, quite a while now, but uh, Paul's touring band, you know, uh, the guys uh, all listened to that album, and we know that they, they listened to that album on the tour bus, and we're getting a kick out of it. And uh, we've worked with a lot of people around the Beatles, but not... Not necessarily the Beatles themselves, but one little secret that we have is that we, 
you know, backstage, we all get together just before the show. It's kind of our secret handshake or whatever it is. But we we do try to perform as if the Beatles themselves are in the audience. And what would they like to see? How would they enjoy themselves being represented? And that's what we try to we try to bring to the stage every night. And you do a great job with it. Uh, do you ever have when you're doing these kind of moments, and you're you're channeling this ability so beautifully on stage? I mean, is it ever surreal for you? Do you ever feel like you're out of body watching this thing unfold? Or, or do you oh, have to be sure. so present? Oh, for sure, especially for me. Uh, because I'll look over and see Gavin, who plays George. I mean, the guy looks just like him. Right. I'm looking over at Paul McCartney. Like you said, I'm looking back at Ringo, and he's shaking his head. And so for me as John, it's really a treat to be performing with these guys. And, and it really does, uh, in, in some ways... It feels uh, like we're at a Beatles concert. I mean, you can't you can't really help it. And we're like I said, we're always trying, striving to make things better all the time. And it, it really is uh, surreal sometimes. And uh, some of my some of my uh, my favorite parts of the show is when I'm not on stage. For example, watching uh, watching Artie do yesterday by himself, or watching. Uh, uh, Gavin do Here Comes the Sun, the first part of it he does by himself, and just so I can kind of break away for a minute and enjoy the show, too. So it it's a lot of fun. Obviously, it's not digging ditches, you know what I mean? Right, right. <laughs> and Mike, you've, if I know being a big Beatles fan as well, what's great about the show is they really kind of do this evolution from the Nehru jacket-wearing Ed Sullivan look. They, they keep coming out and showing the evolution of the Beatles, from costumes to mannerisms, hairdos. And they really rotate through the entire spectrum. And you guys were even doing some of the solo work. Yeah. Um, well, we put Imagine, it was actually my idea to put Imagine in the show, although mm-hmm. it's not a Beatles song. I just thought it was so important um, to John and his career and, and Lennon's sort of outlook on the world and how he always wanted peace and how ironic it was that he was murdered, yet he was always talking about peace and love and and uh, so I think that song's important, so we put that in the show. And as a side project, we actually do have our guy who plays Paul already has his own uh, Paul McCartney and Wings show that we're a part of. Our George has a whole George Harrison show that he puts together, so we know all that material as well. It's just, <laughs> as you can probably imagine, hard to squeeze every great Beatles song into right. a, you know a 90-minute show or two-hour show, depending on how long it is. They always tell us ninety minutes. Always ends up going at least two hours. How do you how do you really kind of filter through their songs? Are you just playing off the Beatles one album and picking out the the number one hits? Or I know you go deep into the cuts as well, but how, you know that's got to be a, a a tough job. Do you change up the shows on a regular basis so you're filtering in different songs? Yeah, it is a little bit of a challenge. Obviously, we'd be there for three days playing it, you know, you know, and still not. <laughs> right. You know, play everyone's Beatles favorite, but uh, basically we do stick to the hits or songs that um, have some significance in their career, um, but every once in a while we'll change. We'll change some songs, especially if we've been to a place before, or if somebody has a special request, or for example, last week was the uh, anniversary of the Ed Sullivan show, so we try to do maybe the set exactly how the Beatles did it, or something like that, or um, last year we did the entire Sgt. Pepper album, we did it on Access TV, and then we did it at a couple of um, a couple other venues. So if there's something like that going on, an anniversary, we'll change it up a little bit. Every once in a while, we'll try to throw a few songs in there, but it, it's hard to do. There's so, so many great songs, and 
like I said, we know them all, so <laughs> it's, uh, but it's still fun. It's, it's great to see all the faces light up when you're playing. You, you know this is their favorite song when right. they're singing along, and, you know, there's kids singing along, there's adults, there's grandparents, and it's just, it's just a great thing. My wife and I are going to celebrate Valentine's with you guys at the Medina Entertainment Center to watch Woo-hoo. the show. Yeah, she she loves the Beatles, and I was raving about the show and literally just found out you guys were going to be out there uh, tomorrow on Friday. So I said, honey, we're getting tickets. She was so excited about this. Is it hard for you to maintain that that deal that day? Do you just kind of focus and start talking as John and, and going through the mannerisms so that you're in sync with that character? Or do you just literally switch it on seconds before you step out on stage. Well, like I said, it is a lot easier when, you know, we're getting ready and I'm looking at the other guys and we're all like there's there's the the other three Beatles, so it's 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 easy to do that. But we do a lot of that, um, getting into character where there's a lot of Beatles music playing backstage in our dressing rooms and, you know, looking at a lot of pictures, making sure our makeup's right and that, that kind of thing. So there's a little bit of uh um getting prepared for the show in that way. But uh um, how many hours you know, take? How many hours to go over video to make sure you've got the the head motions, the foot motions, the, the everything? There are little ticks that really set it apart. Because again, to me, that as silly as it sounds, is what astounded me that it was every little detail you guys paid attention to for your show. Well, a lot of that's just kind of you know burned into our brains. You know, watching all that stuff as a kid, and then. Uh, if you were to come to my office, you would know why the Beatles are millionaires. You know, we have every DVD and video that the <laughs> Beatles ever did. And so it's a matter of, um, you know, it's more of a love of, for it than an, an actual job, you know. I mean, if you ask me to be Paul, I might be, I might not be as good, but I know what he would do here because I've been watching it so long, you know, my whole life. So it's, it's more like just, um, just going back to that thing in your brain that says, okay, here's the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show, or here's a hard day's the concert scene and a hard day's night. Let's just go out and do that, you know. So, have you guys ever tried to switch up roles once in a while just to no, see? No, no, no. no. I, well, I don't think that would be a good idea. We did <laughs> one for April Fools. <laughs> that was pretty funny. We actually took each other's spots for April Fools and played one song like that. It wasn't. It wasn't very good. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> you should just stick with no, the characters you've you've you've, you've pinned no. down. Not a good idea. Well, that's uh, that's great. And again, the show is uh, this Friday at the Medina Entertainment Center. You can find information at medinaentertainment.com, M-E-D-I-N-A, entertainment.com. You can also check out their website. And is it The Fab Four? That's right, thefab4.com. And uh, once, you, once you're doing this, I mean, you guys tour all over the United States and, and around. Is it pretty remarkable to just, you know, get a chance to watch people react to this show that they never got a chance to see the first time? It is. I think that's part of the appeal. Everywhere you go, even places that don't speak the language are, are into our, our show and our, and our band. Obviously, um, the, the music's touched everyone around the world. And I would say if, um, you know, if you have someone that's a Beatles fan in your life, uh, bring them. I know a lot of people, eh, like you were saying in the intro, Eh, it's kind of cheesy, you know. It's it, believe me. It, it, I've had so many people tell us after the show that it, it, what they regretted was not bringing their mom, or oh, next time I'm right. going to bring my sister, or my brother's so in the Beatles, he would have loved this. And uh, that's the thing I would say. Make sure all your Beatle fans in your life uh, come to the show and enjoy all this great music with us. Ron McNeil, John Lennon from the Fab Four. We will see you on Friday, and I hope we'll see a bunch of the listeners. Stay tuned. We've got more coming your way. This is the Tom Bernard Show.